Welcome to the British Army's Leadership Podcast, brought to you by the Centre for Army Leadership. Today's guest is Lieutenant General Nick Borton. Commissioned into the Royal Highland Fusiliers in September 1988, General Borton served in multiple regimental and staff roles, including deployments to Bosnia, Northern Ireland and Iraq. He commanded the Royal Highland Fusiliers, 2nd Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland in 2008, deploying them to Helmand Province in 2009. During this tour, he uniquely changed command, taking command of five Scots battle group in Musakala halfway through the tour when the incumbent commanding officer was wounded. General Bolton then went on to become commander of a 16-air assault brigade in April 2013, before moving as head of military operations in the Ministry of Defence. Having subsequently commanded the 3rd Division, General Bolton became Chief of Staff Operations in our permanent joint headquarters in February 2019 and assumed his current appointment as commander of the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps in December 2021. General, uh, welcome to the Centre of Leadership podcast. It's very good of you to give it your time to talk to us today. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, very good to be joining you, Henry. Thank you, sir. So um, if I may just begin, we we sort of look at leadership, um, you know, through through the course of people's careers, whether they're military or have worked within sport or, or the private sector. And we often see that um, that people's influences and experiences naturally shape how they lead at various stages. But if I may start by asking, what, what does leadership mean to you? Sure. Um... Well, I think the importance of it can't be understated. And uh, and I should start, I suppose, before we talk about leadership, about the profession of arms and, and why leadership is so important to do that. And, and I do believe in the sanctity of our profession, um, you know, the role that we're called upon, the responsibilities that are placed on us, us to, to legally take life in the defence of our nation. And, and that is a higher calling than the people who make crisps for a living. So it demands that we hold ourselves to a higher professional and moral standard. And part of that is giving people the leadership um, that they deserve. So I think it's absolutely at the heart of what we do. Uh, and, and, and what we do is an important thing. Do you think by virtue of that sort of higher calling, so to speak, do you think that the, the people that we, we select and train through, are, is, that ba- is that based on an, uh, an innate ability that's already there or is that something that we can evolve so are, are leaders born or made us I, I, I oh, that question. A, a good old classic there um i'm sure we could um have a study day on that and there's lots of books um i think it's a bit of both i suspect some leaders are naturally born um i think everybody's probably born with an element of leadership potential um but i think you know based on my own experience um whilst there might have been some uh, inherent, uh, well-hidden potential. Um, it was definitely the army and the experience of exercising leadership in numerous appointments during my career um, that has helped me to become a better leader. And when I look back at my younger junior self, particularly as a young officer, um, I think I had an enormous amount to learn and, and there was no way I was um, demonstrating um, outstanding leadership at a, at a junior level. It's something I've learned and, and developed um, over time. That's, that's an interesting bit about how one evolves. Uh, you, you, you've commanded at a, n- a number of different levels from, from being a young platoon commander to, to where you are, are now, commanding the Allied Rapid Action Corps. Well, how has your leadership style evolved and how have you adapted to the various units or indeed the levels of, of leadership and command that you've been placed in? 
So I, I suppose I first seriously began to think about my leadership style when I went to go and command um, a rifle company in my battalion. And I revisited those thoughts every time I subsequently commanded at battle group, brigade, division, and now core level. And whilst um, perhaps the style of one's leadership and the challenge of the command that you're given changes at different levels, I think leadership is, as Slim said, very much about you. And um, I still base my personal leadership, um, although I try and obviously improve it, um, on those on those um, fundamentals that I established and I sat down to write out for the first time and think about when I was a company commander. I think, you know, some of those key things are most importantly being a dealer in hope. Shackleton said that optimism is is the true moral courage. And I do think particularly in in the adversity and challenges of everyday life, but also um, the military challenges that we um, periodically face on operations uh, in the armed forces, um, that it's the job of leaders to deliver optimism and, and to keep their people jollied along. And I think that's extraordinarily important. So be a dealer in hope is, is the first thing. The second thing is commander's intent and making your intent clear. You need to understand what you're being asked to do. And then your job as a leader and a commander is to articulate that in a way that your team at whatever level it is can understand and get behind you. Next thing is wearing the responsibility lightly and, and not sharing your fears. And of course, as you, as you go up through the chain, um, those responsibilities increase. Um, operations provide a new and different challenge of responsibility, but actually often um, for many people, uh, the biggest challenge they face is in dealing with big projects or change or um, administrative organization and management um, within the home base. But whatever the pressures of your job, um, and I've had some reasonably busy jobs, both in the field army and at PGHQ and running operations in the ops directorate, I think it's very important that um, leaders wear that responsibility lightly. So consistency in how you behave, consistency in what you ask your team to do, very important. So they know always what to expect from you and aren't caught out uh, and not sharing your fears. doesn't mean you can't share them with anybody. And it's always good to have a sergeant major or a friend or a spouse or somebody you can share them with. Um, but not sharing them with the team and demonstrating that lightness of touch and um, lightness of spirit, I think, is, is, is very important. Um, two sort of final points on that. I think simplicity is incredibly important in, in the military. Um, approach and our job as officers and leaders and commanders is to bring simplicity to what can become an extraordinarily complex activity and here in the rapid reaction call we're very busily engaged in conversations about multi-domain integration multi-domain operations and the complexities of large-scale peer-on-peer warfare all of that is complicated stuff and our job as commanders is to try and bring simplicity which is the essence of good design to that problem um, it, it needs to be good enough. It doesn't need to be perfect. And I think the human um, nature is to try and overcomplicate things um, because we've got lots of very capable people um, and some people's job is to deliver complexity. So inherently, things get more complicated. And our job as leaders is to cut through that and make sure our people um, understand them. Mm -hmm. And then the final one, I think, is critical and has been at the heart really of my personal command and leadership ethos since I was um, at that company command stage and, and probably thought about it for the first time. And that's a sense of humour and a sense of the absurd. 
Um, remember, when things go wrong, people will look to you. They'll emulate your response. And if you overreact, panic, or just look miserable every day, then um, you know people will respond accordingly and you won't be leading a happy team. So I think having a sense of humor, uh, approaching things with a, with a correct level of um, dismissive sense of the absurd, um, despite the fact that what you're engaged in might be extraordinarily serious, um, is really, really important. Uh, one tip I once got from somebody which I thought was um, very well um, articulated is take your job seriously, don't take yourself too seriously. So maintaining a sense of humour is key. And if you can do all of those things, then you can bring your people with you. And I'm a firm believer that high performing teams doesn't mean that everybody has to go around in a misery. And I've been lucky to command some very high performing teams such as 16 Air Assault Brigade at very high redness, full of you know, deeply qualified, capable, motivated combat soldiers and combat support soldiers. And I think we demonstrated that we excelled on all of our exercises and tests as we did in 3DIV, but we did so with a sense of fun, with people enjoying their workplace and not feeling like they were put upon um, or, or berated. So it's possible to demand high standards uh, and, and to perform uh, to an excellent standard and still enjoy it. Because ultimately, we've got to enjoy our soldiering, don't get paid enough not to enjoy it. And we need to keep our people um, on board, motivated and enjoying it. If, if you as a commander enjoy your soldiering, as I have always done, then the people around you will enjoy their soldiering too. And they'll work all the harder for you and the team. So that's really interesting. The bit there about show your enthusiasm and, and be enthusiastic and the team will be likewise enthused. Is it not? So just to get back to your point about where responsibility lightly, it, it, it's, do you think sometimes it's important to allow people to see your your frustrations and indeed sometimes your fears so they so they see the human side of who you are as a leader or, or is that better kept for private sort of counsel? No, I think there's a difference between um, not pretending you're invincible and not particularly at a higher level sharing your inner concerns with the broader team. Right. Um, so, um, you know, I think back to being a CEO in Helmand, where um, we were probably getting a pretty hard time. Um, and in my heart of hearts, you know, there's no doubt that I had some uh, in the dark, stilly watches of the night, some moments when I thought, gosh, this could really go wrong here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about this. And I discussed it with my good friend, who was luckily my battle group 2IC, um, but when I was going around the rifle companies and the jocks, I didn't tell them that I was lying awake at night worrying about whether we were going to be overrun. I, I told them it was all going to be great and that they were doing a fantastic job. And of course, it was. Um, but I, you, your point about how you present yourself, and again, it's a personal thing, but I think the days when commanders needed to pretend to be perfect and always right um, are A, gone and, and B, unnecessary. And and we'll, you know, I guess this will take us into a discussion about challenge culture and and mission command or collective command. Um, but I don't think as a commander, and I certainly haven't always felt that you need to demonstrate that you're right all of the time. It's actually quite nice for your team to come up with some good ideas and for you to go, that's a great idea. We'll do that. I've I've learned over the years that instead of always rushing to the answer even if you know it in your heart and there's there should be no surprise about that because the reason you're commander is not necessarily because you're most talented it's because you're the most senior and you've been doing it for longer so not surprisingly particularly in the staff 
um, or if you're looking at divisional attack problems or brigade attack problems, if you've done it more, then you instinctively get to the answer quicker. But sometimes as a commander, it's better to just keep your peace and, and keep that inside you, let your team produce the solutions. And it's much more powerful to say to them, great, great solution team, we'll, we'll go with that one. And they think oh, the commander picked our option, even though you might have got to it secretly yourself um, several minutes before. Or mm. they might come up with a different solution, which isn't necessarily the one you'd have picked. But if it's good enough and it works and no one's going to die, then go with that because it that just empowers them and makes them feel much better. So I think absolutely not trying to pretend that you're A, right all of the time. You'll probably be right enough of the time in order to maintain your command authority. Um, so an environment where everyone's having a conversation about how you sort problems out together, rather than you as a commander constantly saying, right, we've got a problem, this is what I want to happen, I think is a much more conducive environment for people to flourish and you'll get much better advice. I've always worked on the theory that I probably don't have the best idea in the room and there are other brighter people there. And um, the trick to command is drawing all of those good advice out, synthesizing it yourself, and then selecting the plan. And if somebody else got a better plan, much better to go with that than one that you've just dreamed up yourself just because you happen to be um, wearing the, the most senior rank in the room. There's a lot in there. So see, obviously challenge culture, ability to empower the team to make decisions and, and, and fundamentally starting. So if we can cover those, but perhaps before we do that, we start with with that key component that enables all of that to happen, which is which is trust. And perhaps if we use the example where, you know, you're during that tour in Afghanistan where you had to take over uh, or shift in focus um, where where you had been uh, to where you then had to cover for a counterpart who was wounded. How did you go in about building trust in a team that wasn't necessarily one that you'd either worked with intimately or or new as well as your own? And how did that, how does that, how did you have to rely on your own experience of building trust? And then we can perhaps talk about challenge after. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and as you say, I was commanding um, a Scottish battalion um, in the south of Helmand when the commanding officer of the other Scottish battalion, the brigade to the north was um, sadly seriously wounded. And I was moved at no notice to move from my battalion, handed over my battalion to my second in command and moved up to Musakala at no notice to take on that battle group. And in that first week, I think I gave three sets of battle group orders and we did two battle group attacks. Um, and, you know, looking back it, it, and at the time, it, it certainly was a challenge. Um, and it reinforces that point that the more training and the more you can do to get to know each other before um, the day of battle, obviously the better. And that's busily why in NATO at the moment, we're all training together and working across the alliance to get to know each other. Um, so we're not meeting for the first time in the forming up point. Um, in that case, I was perhaps fortunate that it was another Scottish battalion um, that I took over. Um, so I knew a number of the people. One of the companies was, in fact, my company. The battalion 2IC had been um, a friend of mine at Staff College. So we were all the same regiment, which helped. And again, we shouldn't dismiss the importance of the British regimental system, which has served us so well for over 300 years and in a modern world is easy um, in a sort of MDO uh, environment to uh, dismiss or forget. Um, but when it came to the crunch, the fact we were all wearing the same cap badge and um, they knew me as the CEO of one of the other Scots battalions um, made an enormous difference. Mm. I think in terms of the people, um, I was just my sort of usual um, 
upfront self. The great thing, I think, is not to arrive um, in, in any new appointment and immediately throw everything out, unless you're arriving in a, in a place which is failing, which clearly it wasn't, um, and, and you've been sent to solve a, a particular drama or particular uh, people are particularly unhappy about something that you can fix quickly. Um, it's a great mistake to arrive in somewhere, announce that your predecessor was yeah, useless and you were going to change everything and turn it on its head, which some people have a tendency to do. And that's deeply um, unsettling for people. So I think the first thing you can always do on taking care of a team is reassure everybody that they're doing a good job and the work they've been doing to date is to all intents and purposes on the right track and that you'll learn about what's going on and over time you might add some nuance and a, and a touch to the tiller and, and clarify your direction, um, but they're not turning the place upside down. So that was the first thing. And then the second thing, as ever, is just getting around and talking to people. And I can't stress how much I think the importance of command is about talking to people. I used to say to young officers when I speak to at the platoon commander's battle course or my young subalterns in the battalion, and it's a good tip for any young officers listening, never walk past a group of soldiers without stopping to talk to them. Doesn't matter if they're your soldiers in a different company, different unit, or a different army. But if there's a group of soldiers just having a chit chat on a corner, don't just walk past them, stop and pass the time of day. They might chin you off, or they might engage you in conversation and be thrilled that somebody bothered to stop to talk to them. And you can ask them about the football, the weather, the exercise they're on, et cetera, their kit, whatever. Um, but talking to people just puts them at, at uh, their minds uh, at rest and, and makes them realize that their commander is a, a human person um, who's dealing with them with compassion and has got their best interests at heart. They don't want to know that their commander might be a brilliant tactician, but couldn't be less interested in their welfare and well-being. That is not the way to imbue soldiers with confidence in their chain of command. So talking, talking, talking is, is absolutely the, the key thing. So, you know, once that sort of the trust element is is that sort of, I suppose, having looked at leadership in more detail over the last sort of six, seven months since I've been doing this role, which is a real privilege. Trust becomes a sort of central component or the real kernel about how one how one does that critical bit of leadership, which is getting people perhaps to do what they either don't think they can do or, or on occasion don't want to do. But when you've built that trust, uh, how do you then start inculcating that sense of the ability to challenge the 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 commander or the decision maker how, how did you go about or how have you gone about in enabling that to happen without so it becomes constructive rather than the, the dangerous zone where one allows challenge to the point where it becomes you know disruptive and destructive yes it's a it's a good question and um you know it depends what one's background is a bit so i i grew up in a Glaswegian Infantry Battalion my whole life. Um, the jocks will be well known to many of your listeners as, as tough, independent-minded, um, often surly and potentially difficult and um, challenging soldiers and um, are quite used to having a good old chit-chat about their orders and absolutely had the confidence and um, cheek, if you like, um, to challenge if they didn't um, think things uh, were going how uh, they thought you ought to be doing them. So I sort of grew up in that environment um, as a bit of a sort of crow's parliament about um, how, how we would do business. And actually, it wasn't a bad way as a young officer to learn uh, and to get some humility, but also to develop that. And then as you go on, I think it's just about creating that climate and asking people what they think. And so 
again, I think, you know, modern commanders shouldn't say, right, what we're going to do is, when confronted with a problem, they should try and say, right, team, what shall we do about this? And it gets easier as you go higher up because you've got more people around you, you've got bigger teams, you've got chief of staffs and all the rest of it. Um, but giving them the opportunity to solve problems and then discussing it um, creates that climate where people f um, know and feel that they can um, you know, be, be trusted. I, I recall a moment in um, the very demanding warfighter exercises that I did um, with 3DIV. And we did two, um, two years in a row, very tough um, CPX uh, in a simulated environment that all the US divisional and core formations go through. And it was very challenging. And one um, dark night, um, it looked like the enemy from a nearby area were going to stray down into our divisional area and, and catch us in the flank. So all the brigadiers were busy advising me to move my divisional reserve, which is a considerable decision to take for the commander, up to the flank in order to protect it from this massive counterattack that looked like it was forming up from a neighbouring division's area. And the Knight G2 was a young female second lieutenant, new out of Sandhurst from the intelligence corps. And she said, General, I don't think it is that. I think it's just some stray vehicles from next door. It's not the big counterattack. You shouldn't move your reserve. All the brigadiers and chiefs of staff going, oh, no, so that's not right. Definitely not. You know, you need to you need to respond now. And I looked at this um, young officer and said, are you, are you absolutely sure? Um, and of course, what you can't say is on your head beer, because we all need to be absolutely clear it was on my head, not hers. <laughs> she said, sir, I'm absolutely confident this is not a major counterattack. I said, good, I will take your advice. We will go on that plan. And um, we we did nothing and, and held on earth. Um, and you'll be relieved to hear the punchline of the story is she was absolutely right. The brigadiers were all wrong um, and um, we were all fine. So it just goes to show Trust your instincts, especially when your instincts are that somebody else is right or got a better mm. idea. Um, yeah. People say, trust your instincts, have confidence in yourself. Well, that doesn't mean that you've always got to go on what you say. Of course, we want officers and soldiers who've got confidence in their own judgment. And if you think you are right and you've made a decision, then you go, you go with that decision and you live with it. But mm. you shouldn't feel in the army or the other services, I suppose, that you've always got to be right or that you've always got to be the one that comes up with the best idea. Use the talent of the team around you and generate the best idea in that collective discussion. So that, I think, is, is the way to approach it. You're right that, of course, there is a thing called military discipline um, that we just do need to attend to so the whole thing doesn't develop into a complete um, discussion panel before every time two section needs to assault an enemy machine gun position. Uh, of course, in a battle, there is a point at which um, the commander of any level has to make a decision um, and everybody under his command has to turn to the right and execute that decision to the fullest of their ability. And success in battle, as we know, only happens when everybody in the team commits themselves to the success of the team over their own survival or personal um, interests. And if they do that, notwithstanding the fact that, of course, you may um, sadly take casualties, but if everyone does that and commits to the mission and the team above themselves, then you have more chance of success. So, uh, of course, there are moments where people just need to do what they're told. Um, but generally speaking, um, you know, a, a collective climate of command, particularly at the higher level, um, is, in my view, absolutely essential. So if we, if we perhaps just take that one one little step further, which is, and, and it plays into how one's leadership evolves once one, you know, that unit level is certainly at subunit level, as you as you articulated, but perhaps at unit level is the last time your 
you're intimately involved with the actual execution of the plan where on the battlefield as the commanding officer you on occasion do have to get right up to the front and and influence momentum as we've seen you know on countless occasions through history but as you as one becomes formation commander and and uh, and becomes increasingly more removed from the physical delivery of the execution of the plan whilst your team is perhaps inculcated with the ability to challenge as you as you rightly as you, as you use the example of the, the young intelligence corps officer who's working in the headquarters I, I presume but how do you encourage that challenge culture out into the wider formation to allow commanders commanding officers and indeed their own subunit commanders and and, and subordinates to challenge constructively the, the plan so to speak or, or the decision making that's going on in their quarters without it becoming toxic in the sense of you know everyone starts pointing fingers at the, at the headquarters rather than having the ability to actually comment on what's going on yeah so i suppose the answer to that is largely in training and how we train our officers and ncos in our schools and academies and um, as we know, there's lots of work going on in the army, particularly about how we continue to improve that. I actually think our schools and academies, and I, I see lots, particularly at Sandhurst, um, I think are you know as fantastic as they always have been. In fact, they're, they're better than they certainly were in our day, um, where we just did drill and got shouted at. Um, you know, the quality of the education and training that people receive now is much better. Um, and I think it's discussions like hashtag teamwork. I know we're string into the a slightly different area there. But again, it's all about encouraging. If the army's prepared to have a conversation of all ranks with itself about mm. its culture, then that can only be a good thing in terms of encouraging people to realize um, that it's not just all one way and a dictatorship. So, um, you know, I think that, that those are all strong things. I think the army has also, um, to its credit, been very firm about rooting out um, the handful of residual toxic leaders um, that have um, still somehow got through the system. Um, and, and the army, I think, has demonstrated and the leadership, you know, moral courage in, in taking difficult decisions to remove people who are clearly not um, leading our people in the compassionate understanding and collective way that um, we would want. So I think it's, it's all of those things, to be honest. Uh, and again, it's for commanders to get around and talk to people and 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 give talks and fireside chats and speak to people and educate. And also what I've learned is that people learn, you know, much of leadership is about emulation. People copy good and bad leadership, which is why it's so important to root out bad leaders because they're all growing a little series of bad leaders below them. So, and that's why they need to be removed. So, um, you know, that's a, a key point is that if you can model those behaviors and leadership at the higher level, then there's a whole bunch of senior people below one who are, who are copying that, who grow up copying that, and, and they um, demonstrate that leadership when they go to command subunits and units themselves. And then the young people in their subunits grow up going, oh, I remember my company commander, my squadron commander, he was really good at this, he was really understanding, etc. And they model those behaviours throughout their life. And we can all think of people who you know, were exemplars to us in various ways as we went through. That sort of ability to to allow allow sort of people inside you know not 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 directly inside your own OODA loop, but certainly you know to allow to see your own sort of vulnerabilities and but 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 and have the psychological safety to to be able to say actually you know I think this might be right or wrong or perhaps you can do this better I think is is really compelling and I know it's something that that we are that we see a lot now here at the academy 
that is being taught to the to the cadets, but also is now sort of being promulgated across the wider army to be able to people in positions of challenge. Perhaps in terms of your being able to, to almost having to lead more remotely, perhaps, or we, we use the word remotely too frequently these days, but when you're in command of a unit, you're able to see the, the subunits at certainly daily. Uh, how does that change as you become a brigade commander you, when you were a divisional commander, now you're a corps commander, where you might see your team every day in the headquarters, but you're not seeing, you're not actually be able to nip down to the tank park and have a brew, so to speak, metaphorically. But how do you how do you maintain that 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 human touch point as a leader as you go higher? It's a it's a very good question and it's um, a difficult one. Um, and fun enough, we here have just been doing some work about our own headquarters. I'm talking about tactical field headquarters and and about the the position of the commander on the battlefield. And, and whether at what level being forward becomes less important than being in the place where all the communications feeds are there to enable the commander to make the best decision. That's a sort of tactical issue. Um, of course, there are always moments when the commander needs to get forward um, into action um, and his troops need to see him. And of course, as you've identified, Henry, the, the lower down that is, the, the more important it is. Remember when Warrior first came into service, um, in the early 90s, um, we had discussions endlessly about whether or not the rifle platoon commander should dismount from the turret, because actually his visibility, his protection and his communications, and therefore his ability to command his platoon remained much better if he stayed in the turret than dismounted along with the rest of the jogs. Of course, we also concluded that there's no way you can lead a platoon attack of your jocks if they're all on the ground closing with the enemy and you're safely protected in your warrior turret um, behind a 30 millimeter cannon. So, of course, our doctrine was, no, the platoon commander gets out with his soldiers and he closes with and kills the enemy, um, as you would expect. Um, clearly, that challenge changes as you go higher up. Um, and of course, you know, in my position now, most of my force elements in the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps are in fact NATO force elements, not UK ones, and are all across the NATO allies of Europe. So I can't walk out of my office and pop down and visit my corps because they're spread across Europe. Um, and that means a lot of traveling and a lot of getting out and shoe leather to go and visit them and taking those key opportunities. Um, brigade level is where it flicks, as you rightly say. I was just lucky to command a brigade that was almost entirely based in one barracks, and, and not everybody is is uh, has that um, happy situation. And again, it's just about energy and getting around. Social media can help. People, some people are very good at that, um, and that's a great way of getting your message out without overdoing it. I think it's always a danger that soldiers get a bit fed up with seeing their commanders endlessly um, posting pictures or videos themselves online, <laughs> um, saying what a great job they're doing. Uh, that might be more about MS than... Yeah, so one needs to watch that. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, as a brigade commander, you have to realise that it's not your job to be um, storming section positions, but you can still get around your units and see them. And then, you know, again, in 3DIV, I was... Um, just had a very busy visit program and I just got around and spoke to people. So people got used to seeing your face. You, you touched briefly on culture and we, we, I'd be really interested to hear, and I think our listeners would as well, you know, you, you're in a unique position in that your the, the culture you're sitting in now is multinational by design. And therefore there are a myriad of different cultures, some of which are complementary. And I suspect, you know, having been at, uh, in a in a NATO headquarters and worked in a multinational um, team before, you know, sometimes that can be, have conflicting interests. How do you balance that now from being a a purely parochial you know, UK um, 
brigade and divisional commander to now being a multinational corps commander? Uh, great question. And um, of course, we're here for NATO and NATO is an alliance and its entire rationale depends on the strength of the alliance and everybody working together to achieve a single aim, which is um, common security and protection. Uh, and therefore, um, almost above all things, uh, alliance comes first. Of course, that brings um, frustrations um, with it. I think Churchill was a person who said um, there's only one thing worse than fighting in an alliance, and that is um, fighting without an alliance, as the Russians are probably finding out. Um, so we, we do absolutely prioritize that. Of course, it comes with frustrations of language, doctrine, and even just national style and approach. Um, but we work around those um, because ultimately we're stronger for it. And there's a great diversity point here. Um, having spent my life in UK field formations to now come to the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps, where there are 20 nations and half the headquarters is made up of non-British officers and NCOs, it brings an enormous levity, breadth of perspective, calmness and just a little dilution to the usual British Army, million miles an hour, it must be done this way, um, focus that the rest of our field formations race along at um, at, at a normal pace. Um, so it, it overall, I think, brings um, tremendous advantage. Of course, there are challenges and, you know, language, for example, is one great lesson for everybody to communicate in a language that people can understand. And we have to regularly um, train ourselves here. We're pretty good at it, but we need constant reminding not to speak in British regimental slang and analogy and sporting analogies, which are completely confusing to our um, partner nation officers. So um, communication, absolutely key to delivering an alliance. Um, lucky old us that the language of the alliance is primarily English, um, but doesn't mean that we're not um, behoven to communicate in a way that people can clearly understand as well. So yeah, uh, getting on with people and embracing the diversity definitely makes for a richer experience. Um, and I think in many cases, a, a more pleasurable um, culture and, and life here as well. Mm. So you, you you talked up front about what one of your kind of key key points on, on when you took command from subunit level onwards about simplifying complexity. How how do you balance the d demands of the the headquarters and your role in terms of coming up with a plan or developing a plan and then delivering it when one might perhaps be met with uh, frictions and perhaps national caveats that are outside your control? And we could use the example perhaps of you know when we were in Afghanistan uh, with you know, great friends in the in the German team that was up in the north quite often were were limited by what they could do by having to refer back to their own nation for approval to do something as as indeed many others did so how do you balance that when you're when you're in the developmental process of a plan and actually executing the 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 the, the plan that you put in place as a, as a core commander when you're trying to balance what the intent of the headquarters is but also balancing what national caveats might be Mm. Yes, uh, and and you're right. Those are, you know, again, the challenges of, of an alliance, particularly one that's perhaps more ad hoc um, in a counterinsurgency campaign in Iraq or Afghanistan. Mm. I suppose the advantage here is a we're all working to NATO doctrine, and so on the face of it, everyone is here has signed up from NATO. Um, they're all signed up to NATO doctrine and um, are trained in it, and that's the language we speak here. 
and everybody's here all the time. So the ARC isn't just some team that, um, you know, has been put together last week to deal with a crisis. You know, the ARC's been going since 1992 as the oldest NATO core headquarters. And all the partner nations have been here for many years and send experienced officers, most of whom know a lot more about NATO and are well used to it um, mm -hmm. than the British Army. So um, we don't come across that problem often, I think, in, in real um, combat, um, God forbid, um, I, I'm sure we would have those problems and we'd have all the problems of the host nation where we were operating and what their appetites were. Um, so it would be much more complicated than in Ukraine, where um, there's, it's simply one state on another state, albeit there's a bit of proxy activity going on behind one of them. Um, so um, I think it would be a, a challenge for real, but we work very hard to get around that by using common NATO doctrine and procedures. And actually mm -hmm. what we've seen over the last um, months since February 24th um, is NATO really expediting its collaborative planning and the way it had already been on the journey to deliver uh, much more unified plans to meet the emerging threat. Um, and of course, the crisis has, has really energized NATO into drawing that together more quickly. So I, I think we're in a good place from a NATO perspective. So that's a, a, an interesting uh, sort of perhaps segue into how we, we might discuss the, the, sh the changing face of warfare, uh, if we may. And perhaps, perhaps you start with looking at, so we recently uh, interviewed General Smith, who you, you, you'll know, I'm sure, uh, either personally or certainly through his his work and a utility of force is, is sort of core reading for many of us. But, you know, he famously talked about the shift, the paradigm shift in warfare uh, to war amongst the people. Um, but now we see greater advances in technology do you think that that now starts to alter how we view warfare? Uh, not notwithstanding that you still need the possible boots on the ground, but is there a greater reliance on technology, and therefore is the is the method by which we're fighting changing? Very good question. I think the first thing I would say is, um, you know, General Smith, who I've um, obviously studied myself and listened to lots over the course of my own military education, and in fact I served under him. Um, when he was the commander in Bosnia many, many years ago, um, is a superlative military thinker, um, probably underrated, um, and his book, um, Utility of Force, still is tremendously um, pertinent. Um, and if I was going to identify, you know, great military commanders of the past for particular things, I'd say in terms of professional excellence and knowledge, and speak to anybody who served in his armoured division um, in Gulf War One, First Armoured Division. Um, General Rupert Smith is absolutely um, up there in terms of, uh, or unmatched really, in terms of his professional knowledge and understanding. So if he says something, it's definitely worth listening to. Um, the point that you develop is a really interesting one because, as I said before, warfare is becoming more complex because and more complicated. Um, and that's because technology advances apace and then wars like Ukraine dramatically, as we know, um, in, lo in lots of areas, all wars expedite um, development. War warfare is the engine of history and the engine of, of technological development. So, of course, it becomes more complicated, particularly if you accept my thesis that humans are inherently complicators. Um, I think what Ukraine has shown, though, is that Despite all that technology, which is very important and which you know will be telling in, at the end of the day, what's actually determined the outcome of the war in Ukraine so far is the spirit and will of the Ukrainian army and people. 
And it's shown that despite technology, warfare is still ultimately a human activity and, you know, both based on the on the human heart and the human spirit. And it is because all of those, you know, stuff we learned as young officers, um, the, the moral component, as we were all taught, is the preeminent component of the elements of fighting power is higher in the Ukrainian armed forces than it is in the Russian armed forces. And that's why we're seeing them still with their morale tremendously high and with some highly entertaining TikTok videos online demonstrating that they are still able to maintain their morale in the, in the, in the face of the onslaught um, is what is enabling them, I think, to prevail. Of course, they need the physical with it, and that's the weapons and all the things that we see playing out in the press. You've got to have that, of course. Um, but ultimately, what's telling is um, their, their fighting will and spirit. So I still think we make a mistake if we think we can um, technologize war, you know, out of the human experience. The nature and character of war, in many ways, um, remain pretty constant. And um, I think we're seeing that in Ukraine in the way it's playing out. Notwithstanding the fact there's always new technology that we would wish to exploit and make sure was on our side, um, not just on their side. Yeah, and we might perhaps sort of look at Russian leadership, well, Russian leadership theory and their sort of more, slightly more Byzantine way of doing business, which is very hierarchical and doesn't allow for that key element that we all subscribe to, which is mission command. Yes. Um, and I suppose you could say that the Russians came unstuck early because they tried to um, engage in quite ambitious um, manoeuvre and information operations that came unstuck. And now they've resorted to um, more classic um, conventional Soviet battle doctrine, which is massed artillery fires and attritional advancing on specific fronts, how they won the Eastern Front. So, um, you know, tragically for the Ukrainian people in its cities, that's what we're now seeing play out because they've demonstrated that they don't have the leadership doctrine or um, depth to be able to conduct warfare in a more sophisticated manner. We could draw parallels from recent coin campaigns, but also from what's going on in, in Ukraine now. But how how do we continue to operate within a rules-based system of finite outcomes against adversaries whose ide ideological perspective is very different and perhaps infinite? Um, yeah, interestingly, we had a debate about um, the challenges of urban combat in major cities last night here in the Ark on this very issue. Um, and one could, for example, look at urban objectives like Kiev and say it's very hard to see in a future conflict how a NATO force would or could um, operate, um, A, from a scale and capability point of view in an objective the size of Kiev, for example, um, and B, whether we'd be allowed or wish or have the stomach to operate um, in the sort of humanitarian uh, challenge that the Russians are quite happy, um, evidently, operating in. You know, are we happy to reduce cities to rubble and cause thousands of casualties in the way the Russians um, are in order to achieve those objectives? Um, and I think that's up, up for debate. Um, the true answer, of course, is context, because we're not in a war of survival um, in, in the West. Um, and obviously, we hope we're not going to be in one if we get the deterrent bit right, um, which, you know, hopefully we're stepping up the plate, up to the plate to doing. Um, but of course, if, if one is in a war of survival, then one's um, uh, calculation um, between those two things changes. And, you know, clearly the Ukrainians um, are, are, are in it 100 percent to the bitter end. 
utterly committed and are prepared to make those difficult decisions in order to make sure that they they um, defend their homeland. Um, and, and we would need to work out at what point in that spectrum um, of total war we were um, to answer the question about what we'd be able to do. But it is, is certainly a challenge that one needs to examine and, and one we examine here and, and, and across NATO. Do, do you think there's, um, if one moves sort of, if one uses the Second World War as perhaps a reference point, and then move forward through the various different campaigns and conflicts, not necessarily all solely conducted by the United Kingdom, but as we as our freedom has become entrenched and is as a, as is and is rightly sacrosanct, do you think the, the the wider collective conscience is less has less appetite for for total war and indeed for all those dark aspects of total war that 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 you perhaps might have to undertake in order to metaphorically win so therefore do we are we, perhaps are we restricted and and limited by social perspectives and and in turn should we live under the same rules as societies full stop that we protect or should we have slightly different ones in order to ensure that that protection is manifestly maintained in in perpetuity um, I'm sure you're right. I think it, you know if one examines society in the West or in UK as it went into um, World War II, of course, um, the vast majority of people had experienced um, total war during World War One, so it was not an alien concept to them. Um, you know, they understood what they were getting into and the sacrifice that was required. Uh, when we went to the Falkland Islands in 1982, all of the chiefs had served in World War II as young officers. So mm. they were able to make decisions and calculations on risk and reward um, and, and sacrifice with the context of understanding what total war looked like. Um, we are a long way from that here. And, you know, as you say, we've, we've been on a journey of small, um, relatively uncostly, although, of course, it doesn't always appear that way, but in the great scheme of things, relatively uncostly um, campaigns. Uh, and I think um, society probably is a long way away from from being at the point where it understands that. Um, I think, you know, how you solve that is is well above my pay grade. Thank goodness. Our, our job as the military is to, you know, prepare ourselves for the worst case. And that's always the challenge in any society that isn't faced um, with an existential threat. It's very interesting in NATO when I talk to um, my counterparts in the armies of countries which are much closer to the problem, i.e. abutting yeah. the Russian or Belarusian border, and all countries who have been occupied for many years by um, the USSR in the past, their perspective on all of that, much different um, to ours back here. So it's definitely something that one needs to bear in mind when one's working in an alliance and um, society and its its leaders would have to work out as the context changed um, or changes in front of us, um, how it responds to that challenge and, and what we're prepared um, to step up to the plate on. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point, actually. And sometimes I think people might overlook that, that, you know, you're you're currently commanding a multinational organisation. And as you rightly say, some some of those nations are an awful lot closer to the the current problem, uh, and indeed, have, have the, the the generation of senior officers will have grown up under a very different set of circumstances to those of us who grew up, you know, in more liberal Western societies. So, again, I suppose that plays back to your bit about earlier on how we when we were discussing how you lead them. Do you change your leadership style, or do you just accept, 
you know that things are fundamentally different and and it will they will all work or, or does that, is there something that you have to sort of balance against you know current experiences versus those of others and, and how do you integrate all that well i think you just have to um approach things with a little more humility than than perhaps sometimes we inherently do in the british army um british army is a very highly trained experienced world-class army with a with a reputation and a history that's second to none um it's just worth reminding oneself when one speaks to allied officers um that they all have um that as well from their own background and they've in many cases got a much better insight on nato and the threat than we do back here so it's not just always assuming that um you know the british are right or that the british way of doing things is the best way um often it isn't and you know pausing to ask other people's views I, i've got officers in this headquarters who are um fluent russian speakers and some of whom started their military service in the warsaw pact armies of, of their countries at the time when mm -hmm. the border was drawn in a different place. So they come with a different perspective and we try and make the most of that here and um, weave it into the conversation and, and exploit it rather than always assuming things from a British viewpoint. Can I ask you, if we go back a little bit in terms of your own experiences, what did you learn or what have you learned from your greatest failure? Where to start, Henry, where to start? <laughs> Um, I think that, you know, probably the things that have gone wrong in the past um, reinforce many of the things I point, which is, um, and, and everyone's got their own failings, so they'd have to examine why things went wrong compared to themselves. I think I probably, um, you know, sometimes lacked confidence in my own ability to, to deliver things. And, and as you surf for longer and, and have more operational experience, you develop that, um, you know, experience a bit more. It's kind of pleasant surprise to discover as a divisional commander that I probably knew more about doing divisional attacks than anybody else. That was a relief, um, but no surprise given I'd been doing it longer. But when one's younger, one's often coming across things for the first time rather than, um, you know, relying on a bank of experience. And I think the bank of experience is an important thing. And that's why it's very important to do two things. Firstly, to listen and talk to people who have more experience or better ideas or bigger brains. And secondly, to read, read, read. And I really think um, in the military profession, where the consequences of getting our jobs are so wrong, um, are, are wrong are so um, severe, that reading widely about one's profession is really important. Um, you know, I've read pretty much every book on armoured manoeuvre in World War II um, and British generalship, and that helped me be a divisional commander, and it helps me be a corps commander because I, you know, have read all of those battles and the lessons learned by our generals across all of those fronts. We haven't done it since then, um, but it helps if you read books on leadership um, and and people who've been in tough command positions. Um, then it, it all grows your own. Um, instinct, understanding, and natural feel for this profession if you're taking it seriously. Um, I think that and, and you know, the, as I said, the ability um, to take advice. I remember doing my first patrol in Northern Ireland with my platoon, and I knew what the right answer was. I knew what we ought to be doing, but I lacked confidence in my inability to command it, and I lacked confidence in my jocks to deliver it. And so I outlined a less good plan that I thought we could probably get away with it. And a hand immediately went up at the back from one of the youngest jocks saying, sir, wouldn't it be a much better idea if we did this, this and this? And all the rest of the jocks said, yeah, so yeah, that'd be much better. 
And so I paused, thought, oh, this is going well. Um, so I said, well, do you think we can do that, team? Do you think we can manage that between us? And they went, yeah, we can do it, sir. We'll work around you. You go there, do this. We'll we'll respond. You tell us when to do this. It'll all be fine. We can definitely do it. So I said, OK, let's do it then. So we did. And of course, we pulled it off and the jocks are magnificent and it was fine. So I think confidence in oneself, but also have confidence in your team and understand how good your team is. General Rupert Smith, who you mentioned earlier, had a great analogy about understanding your team as an engine. And every engine is engineered to a specific level of tolerance and all the bits in it, depending on what sort of engine it is, lawnmower versus fighter jet, are all engineered to different levels of tolerance. You need as a commander and leader to understand exactly how good your engine is and to what tolerance and degree um, all the bits in it, i.e. the people, are engineered. And that means that you're not asking them to do anything that they can't do or is beyond them. That's a bad thing. But more importantly, you also can't um, uh, underplay them or not use the engine as effectively as you could, which, again, in our game um, is also a mistake. So I think understanding your team and how good they are and your own interaction with them is, is key to that. Do you think we do collectively learn enough from our failures and are we actually inculcating that point of pushing to the point of failure to, to, to understand where our individual and collective boundaries actually are and then reinforce those? No, I, I, I still think that although the army talks about safe to mm -hmm. fail and, um, you know, the next chief of general staff was was very firm on it when he was commander field army. But then subsequently, I, I still saw people getting into trouble for experimenting and mm -hmm. getting things wrong um, and, and making mistakes, despite the fact we were telling them it's safe to fail. You've got to learn. And, and the lesson is you learn more from your mistakes when things go well. You know, you think back to excises or attacks you've done or serials. And when things have gone well, you think, oh, this is great. I'm, you know doing really well it's all all going swimmingly actually you learn a lot more from when those things went wrong and it mm. was a hard lesson and the debrief was all a bit uncomfortable and then the mm. next time you do anything right we know what to avoid there so i think you do learn a lot more from you know training serials that go wrong and um I, i'm not sure we still properly convinced people um you know the air and aviation world have this just culture where when you have near misses, you you fess up and, and say so that everyone can learn from them and adjust them so we don't have um, you know aircraft piling in, which is a, a serious business. I'm not sure in the army or the grand elements of the army that we necessarily always do that. I think we probably still go, Whew, we got away with that, let's keep quiet and hope that nobody notices. Mm. Um, so I think, um, yeah, embracing that is is still um, you know really important. Yeah, I think that's certainly something that we do we, we do talk about but i don't think we necessarily push it enough and and not only that but the, the ability to allow people to to train you know that, the old adage of train hard fight easy train hard and, and get and test where your own boundaries are and then they sort of log those and then go away and do it all again so you know where you're pushing to but actually reinforce the good bits and i think perhaps are, are we giving us our people enough time to train so everything becomes in it intuitive or, or are we just not quite there yet well i think the, the field army are onto that um and i think um you know field army have identified that you know some units in the army are very well trained and, and others have because of their program um less chance to have um to have done that so yeah. um I, I think that's true but i also think field army acknowledge it 
I mean, on the, on the business of making mistakes, you know, I once um, had the privilege of being sent off to go and escort the chief of army staff from Pakistan, um, General Badra, very impressive general indeed, been a corps commander, lots of calls in the Pakistan army. And um, I was a newly promoted divisional commander. And so I was chatting away to him and I said, General, having been a corps commander and now an army commander, what, what single piece of advice would you give a brand new division commander? And without a pause, he said to me, always punish negligence, never punish mistakes. And that's the chief of the Pakistan army. So, you know, that for me is, is absolutely right. Uh, articles of bad faith um, need to be punished. Um, but people just making good, honest mistakes in good faith, we just need to learn the lessons and move on. Yes. And we, we've talked a lot about this at the centre uh, here in Sandhurst. And, we, you know, we, we, we have the privilege of talking to our, our single service counterparts, our colleagues um, around the world, but also in public, private business and sports. And sports are a really good one for, you know, pushing to the point. And quite a lot of people we've spoken to have said, you know, a failure is only a failure if it's a mistake made twice. Um, and and actually allowing those mistakes to happen for the right reasons is is a really interesting parallel that you've touched on there that we we do hear that quite frequently. But but and but and it's encouraging, and I'm sure our listeners will be encouraged to hear that you know the field army and the wider army is actually starting to look at that in much more detail to allow that to happen. So we give our young people the the, the freedom of movement to to understand what they're capable of and indeed what their teams are capable of. I think that's right. I also think, um, since you mentioned the, the civilian sector there, um, there's an enormous amount of interaction between the civilian sector, private sector and, and the military now. Uh, um, and we take lots of lessons and we study how they do business and we adopt their business models. And it's interesting because when I joined the army, interestingly, it was business that copied the military leadership um, models and organization models. They were deemed to be the exemplar and, and good businesses ran themselves in, in a military-like manner. And over time, that's changed. And of course, there's a lot of good stuff to learn there, particularly in the way we manage our people sometimes, although civilian organizations don't often get it right. Um, and probably an interplay is the answer. But I would just caution that um, Sometimes people say, you hear them saying, oh, well, in the civilian world, they do this, or in the business world, they do this. And they say, let's be really clear, we are not in that world. We are about delivering combat power in the defense of the nation, and it's completely different to any other walk of life or activity. So we just need to be wary, I think, in the military of too much referring or deferring to how things are done in, in the private sector or in business, because that is not the game we're in. And we need to remember what's different about what we do and focus on that whilst seeking best practice where we can, um, but not pretending that it's um, something that it isn't. Yeah, there's a fundamental point there, isn't there, sir, about, you know, taking good practice, but but always understanding, and you, you said right at the start, you know, our, our very nature of our business is fundamentally different, you know, in that uh, unconditional liability that we all uh, accept and sign up to. Uh, it is important that we remember that. We can't just mirror 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 different organizations because it because it might be good or good for that perspective in terms of you know that that sector of business that they're working in but i, I think it's a really interesting interesting point you've raised so conscious of the, of the time and you're you're very very kind to give up so much of your time i know what is what a, what is a very busy job um we we always finish with a few quick fire questions and it, it kind of it allows us to draw some parallels across 
a number of different people speak to. Sometimes they are very quick. Um, in certain circumstances, they've been <laughs> quite quite long and drawn out, which has been fascinating. Um, but if I may, sir, who, who's the best leader that you've ever worked with and why? I think I've, I've worked with some very good ones and um, some less good ones who I've learned from equally. Um, I worked for a very good commanding officer when I was adjutant of my battalion. It was not a fun experience, but I learned the importance of attention to detail and a great quote, which is, genius is an infinite capacity for taking pains. And that doesn't mean do everybody's jobs. And he occasionally did everyone's jobs for them, but he was better at it than they all were. Notwithstanding what I said about, you know, empowerment and collective is that checking is a good thing. So mission command, we haven't really talked about. Um, mission command is a tactical tool for winning battles, but we we use it across the way we do business, which is is fine. But it doesn't mean that as somebody responsible for something, you don't check that it's been done. Always got taught by our company commander at Sandhurst, if it's not checked, it's not done. That doesn't mean over-supervise. It doesn't mean do people's jobs for them, let them get on with it. But if it's, you know, particularly something like an armory check or a money check or checking on people, then always check, check, check. So that was the first thing I remember. Just that attention to detail has stood me in good stead throughout my career, particularly as a staff officer, but also as a commander. I think I mentioned Rupert Smith in terms of professional knowledge and excellence. It's an important game we're in, involved in. This is not a not a business for amateurs. You know, all of us need to continue to invest in our own understanding of our profession, um, which is important. Some of us are generalists, some of us are specialists, but we need to be all over the detail of whichever side of the spectrum you're on. Final one I'd mention is my brigade commander when I was a CO on operations. I went to who it was to save embarrassment. But the empowerment that we received on a very difficult, demanding and dangerous operation from the brigade commander who made his intent absolutely clear, which is a, a key point I maybe didn't make up, up front or maybe I did, is commander. You need to understand what you're being asked to do as a commander. And then you need to make your obviously make a plan, make a plan to command. And then you need to make your intent above all else clear to your people, because if they understand your intent, then you can let them get on with delivering their part of the plan quite happily because they all know they're marching to your intent. It's basic stuff, but people often don't do it. And certainly our brigade commander was very clear and inspiring about what he wanted us to do. And at no point was I ever unclear about what was required of me. But at the same time, I was left to get on with it and almost, you know, rarely saw him uh, apart from, um, you know, rare visits to check that Frankly, we were okay and I was okay. So that was a, a masterclass for me in, in trust and mission command while still making sure that your intent was clearly understood by everybody. I think uh, I think some of us, some of the listeners and some of us might know who that was. And uh, I certainly recall him once saying, you know, and it echoes your point at the start, sir, which you did talk about intent, but you know, the critical piece there, the, the very best commanders are the ones who can simplify complexity. So the most junior soldiers understand exactly what they've got to do. There we go. Um, and that was that was true. I, I liked your bit about yeah, I liked your bit about genius. Um, you know, uh, forgive me, genius is an infinite capacity. I think that's wonderful. But I, I'm sort of also reminded about a lovely quote from Seneca, who, a wonderful Stoic, who said, "You know, there's no great, there is no great genius without a touch of madness." Which um, you know, a good yin and yang of of um, you know the the facilities for being able to deliver some success when all around's falling apart, which is quite useful. Right. Yeah. Um, who do you think is the most inspirational leader from history and why? You you, you said you studied history a lot. Who do you see as the most in, influential leader that you've studied? Yeah, I mean, it's such a broad subject and there are so many out there. 
so I think it depends what you're doing. I think, you know, Churchill for many people was the man of the moment, despite the fact he was a obviously a flawed character. He he was the, the right man for the challenge at that level, which was political national leadership. Um, I must admit, Kennedy gave great speeches, but then he didn't always write them himself. Um, the person for me as a soldier, so thinking about my life and job as commanding soldiers and sailors and airmen during joint appointments um, at PGHQ and MOD, the, the, the person for me who articulates military leadership in, in the best way is Field Marshal Slim. And, and nobody should be in the British Army without having read um, Defeat into Victory, because Slim was the master of humility. He was the master of knowing his own business, but not the detail of, of his subordinates' business. He was the master of gluing together a team in adversity. I mean, if he had lost his nerve, then we never would have recaptured Burma. And, you know, the empire would have been lost before it was handed back. So for me, you know, set against the extraordinary um, challenges the 14th Army in Burma faced in terms of lack of resources, always being not on the main effort, um, and, the, and the diversity of the army that Slim commanded from across the whole empire, that he was able, through his own force of personality, humility and example, to bring together and then ultimately to militarily outfight the Japanese army in Burma tactically. For me, all of those things make him the sort of standout um, military leader for somebody at my level in position in terms of the, the lessons I draw on. What's the most valuable leadership lesson that you've learned? I think hold your nerve. Keep your faith, my two IC used to say to me when things were looking grim in the Musakala Wadi. You know, have the confidence in your team. People are capable of the most extraordinary things if you just give them their head and trust your people, have faith in them and have faith in yourself. And if you can do that, then you'll be a good commander. Um, it's that that mask of command is the ability to remain calm when all is going to blazes around you. And holding your nerve, I think, is, is, is the single most important thing. It plays a bit to risk. We haven't really talked about risk and, and managing risk. Um, and there's no question that the modern world in every sphere um, erodes our um, empowerment and our confidence in, in taking risk. And yet that's a challenge because um, the whole balance of war and, and battle is about fortune favours the brave. That's the motto of the arc. It's all about risk and balancing risk and ends, ways and means to achieve the end. So for me, I think, you know, balancing risk all plays into that. And it's all about holding your nerve. Finally, what uh, with with the benefit of hindsight, which is always a, a a wonderful thing that we never really get until we're past key, the event. But key senior officer's tool, hindsight. <laughs> what what's the one piece of advice that you'd give a a, a young second lieutenant Borton as they left the the academy on their journey into the army? Always say two things to my officers who who commissioned from the academy. The first thing is if you demonstrate that you always put your soldiers first and there's nothing you won't do for them and, and that your devotion to them and what you're prepared to do for their well-being, um, including leading them on operations, is above all things. There is nothing your soldiers won't do for you. Woodbine Willie, the, the famous World War I um, chaplain, his real name was Studdett Kennedy, said that soldiers will forgive you anything except a lack of courage or devotion. So if your soldiers know you're devoted to them and, and you will always put them first, there's nothing that they won't do for you and they'll follow you anywhere. That's thing one. Thing two, always maintain a sense of humour and keep a smile on your face as you're soldiering. Because if you enjoy your soldiering, 
everybody around you will enjoy your soldering and um, as a result the whole will be much better wonderful thank you so much general for you know some fascinating insights not only into you know your progress and and how you've you know, both evolved and learnt leadership through the course of the various different levels of command and responsibility that you've had, but also, you know, where you are now, you know, unique in, in the sense of commanding a, a varied multinational force, um, and some of which, as you rightly said, is, you know, a lot closer to current uh, global geostrategic issues than, than others, which I think is a fascinating problem and conundrum to have to deal with. But, sir, I'm really grateful. I know our listeners will be fascinated to, to hear all of your insights. Thank you so much for giving up your time. Not at all, Henry, my absolute pleasure. Once again, a hugely informative discussion which reaches into the heart of what it takes to lead at the very highest level. General Bolton's dictum of aiming to simplify complexity strikes a chord with much that we do and learn within the army, ensuring that at every stage of the process, our most junior soldiers, who are often those who deliver the plan, can understand what, when and where they need to take action. Importantly, in striving to have confidence in both oneself and one's team, General Bolton underpins the core concept of developing trust as a central component of our ability to lead. Giving people the opportunity to solve problems, mission command, makes them feel that you trust them and in turn means they trust you. Critically, he extols the virtue of learning from our mistakes, where often our best lessons come from failure, and that we should do more to accommodate this. General Bolton shed light on how one's leadership style, and indeed function, changes the more senior one gets. As you climb leadership hierarchies, there is a balance between leading at the front, where you can be intimately involved in the tactical action, vice leading from the rear, where you have access to more information and are detached from the action, but are thus required to influence things in a different way. And importantly, given his current role in a multinational organization, the need for a nuanced approach to leading a diverse organization of many different cultures and nationalities, where ultimately communication is key to achieving success. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, do please subscribe to our podcast. Please also share and comment. For more information on British Army leadership and to get in touch with anyone on the team, please visit our website. And of course, follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook and LinkedIn.